we should always remember all that God has done in our lives. I am so thankful you're here this morning, and I hope that you are more focused than what I seem to be today. I told uh, one of our men just a few moments ago, this is almost like an out-of-body experience day for me. And I don't know if it's the remnants of virus. I don't know if it's the uh, cocktail of stuff I took last night before I went to bed or what it is. But we're going to make it through this morning. I'm excited to be here with you and to share with you from the Word of God. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Acts chapter 9 as we begin. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, share with you, for those of you who didn't return, weren't back with us last Sunday evening, uh, that our church voted overwhelmingly to extend a call to Brother John Waters from Jonesboro, Arkansas to come and serve on staff here. He accepted that call. And uh, will be here with us beginning on February the 24th. And in saying that, I also will not pause before saying thank you, Brother Mark, for months and months of faithful service. Um, Certainly, it has far exceeded what the average interim is, and yet you have graciously and kindly continued to serve uh, with the heart of ministry and appreciate that so very, very much. Well, we've been talking about starting over. I, I just thought that was a great way to start a new year. And, you know, we've, we've looked at several people. We looked at Moses. We looked at Samuel. Last week, we looked at Nicodemus. And this morning, we're going to look at one final person who has extended the opportunity to start over. That extension, listen, it doesn't come from us deciding, I'm going to do something different. It doesn't come from us saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf or I'm going to begin fresh this year. It's, it's an invitation from God. Last week, we saw that in the life of Nicodemus. I mean, he went to Jesus himself. And asking, so what's this stuff all about? This being born again. And Jesus explained it to him in the most amazing way. We've looked at people who didn't think they could have a fresh start. We've looked at people who thought they were already finished, done, washed up. And someone who was religious but needed a fresh start in Nicodemus. Today, well, today we're going to see something a little bit different. Today, I want us to take a look at a new start for those who hate Christianity. And I know some of you are going to say, well, there's nobody like that. Hello? Are you living in 2019? I want you to understand something. If you think that's an extreme title, I want you to pause for just a moment. Step outside the context of this sermon and understand something with me. Whenever a people can vote to legalize murder up to the instant of birth and even after a child is born 
because they failed to complete the murder beforehand. We are this small of a step from an all-out war on Christian ethics. And when that war begins, Christians will be in the sights. My friends, this week in this country, we turned a corner. And I don't know that we can back up around that corner. Which means that Christian people like myself and, and, and you, we're going to have to make a decision of whether we will stand in our convictions or if we're going to back up. You make your decision. Mine's already made. I will not back down. And I'm just going to tell you right now, so let it go on the record today. On January the 27th, 2019, I don't know what this body would say. I don't know where you would stand. I don't know what your individual decisions are. But the man who stands in this pulpit today will now and forevermore decry that abortion is murder and what New York legalized is an abomination in the sight of God. And if they want to come and get me, they can come. I don't care. It is a hatred of, a hatred of life is a hatred of Christianity. Why? Because Christ loves and he came to give life. That's what the gospel is about. You cannot give life to those you've murdered. If you have not been driven to your knees in prayer this week, we'll ask. I pray that you would allow God to do so. And if you cannot find that in your heart, I pray that you will ask God to have mercy upon you. <sighs> Today we're going to talk about somebody who hated Christianity. They're still here today by the way. They're all around us. But he was allowed to start over, not because he deserved it, not because he was good enough, not because he earned it, but because God had grace on him. Of course, I'm talking about Saul, the persecutor of the early church. But he had a meeting with Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Lord. And that meeting led to a conversion experience. The most radical transformation of a heart that I think has ever been recorded in literature, let alone in Scripture. It didn't just change his life, but when you consider that he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, it changed the history of the world. But if you really want to understand the power of conversion, you have to examine his experience. I understand that not everyone hates Christianity. Not everyone is guilty of murder or any other sin that we would deem vile. God deems them all vile. But every conversion experience is life-altering, life-changing. But this experience was probably more radically transforming 
than virtually other, any other experience we have recorded for us in Scripture. I want us to see how it unfolded. The only way to do that is to look in God's Word. What better place can we look? So if you've got your Bible open, Acts chapter 9, I know that you've probably read this a, a million times, but we're going to read it again. If you can and will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Join with me. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Father, this morning I ask you to bless the reading of your word. As you broke Saul, I pray today that you would break many across this land and around this world. Father, we are in need of an outpouring of heart transformations, radical and intense. It's not something the church can do. It's not something a preacher can conjure up. It's something that only you can do through your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. And Father, I pray that you would pour it out upon this land. And if not, Father, I just simply pray for mercy upon your people. Father, speak to our hearts. Teach us your truth. Convict us of our sin. Convince us of our great need for the Savior. Draw us to you. That all might know. Jesus Christ is Lord. For it's in his name I pray and ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is amazing what God can do in a human heart. Saul hated believers. He hated witnessing Christians. He hated the church. He had been part of, of stirring up the crowd and then looking on with pleasure when Stephen was put to death. 
He made it his goal to do everything in his power to destroy the church. I just want you to think about this for for an instant. If Saul had been successful in the plans of his heart and the intentions of his mind, we wouldn't be here today. Christianity would not have survived the first century. There would be no church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you can begin to fathom what the world would look like if that were the case. But it would be a vastly different landscape. I read this passage and there are just a few things that jump out. And I think, you know, I've read this passage, I've preached this passage, but how in the world am I going to share this passage and, and help you to understand what happened? Well... Here's what I really want to do. I want you to realize something with me. Because we do live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile. Not just to Christianity, but it's just becoming increasingly hostile. Certainly Christianity's in the crosshairs of of much of that. But I want you to understand something. There is hope for those who hate Christianity. And the reason is simple. Because Jesus saves doesn't need to be any more complex than that. So let's just start at the start and go from there, shall we? Saul's hatred was real. Saul's hatred, listen, this is not a made-up thing. This is not a fabrication for a story. Saul hated Christians. He hated Christianity. And listen, he had, I think, it's pretty safe to assume that he was there when the Sanhedrin was holding their session and, and that Stephen was preaching to the high court. And, and as he did that, and they became more and more agitated and they finally determined, let's just put him to death. The reason I say he was probably there was because then he was present when they dragged Stephen outside of the city. And whenever they picked up stones and began to hurl them at Stephen with the intent of killing him, he was there and he was looking on and he was pleased and happy with it. In fact, Luke records for us that whenever they went outside the city, the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Just beyond that, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read this condemning statement. Saul was there giving approval to his death. Oh, he can say, I I didn't throw any stones. No, but he was the chief cheerleader. He was the encourager. He was the instigator. He was the one who was going to stay there and make sure that they didn't stop throwing rocks until the job was done. And my friend, I just want to tell you something. You live in a morbid world today. If you don't know what stoning looks like and you want to observe it, you can go on the internet and you can find videos of people being stoned to death in the present age and you can see it for yourself. It is morbid. It is gruesome. It is an act of evil. Saul was a religious young man. But he was filled with hatred for those, see if this doesn't sound somewhat familiar, for those who didn't think like him, believe like him, or practice like him. His religion was you will be what I say you will be 
or you will not be. He was not content to let people follow after God, to follow the way that the Lord led them, to take their own. No, he was going to destroy anyone, everyone who was on a different spiritual path than himself. Now, I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're that note taker, here you go. Don't ever forget this. Hatred is never static. It grows. It grows or it's eliminated. One of the two. It is not going to remain the same. And right after Stephen died, and Saul was there, he witnessed it, he approved of it, he was giving his approval to those who were participating in it, and right after that, he begins to feed his, his hatred. And listen, if there's one thing in our, in our lives and in our hearts that we don't need to feed, it's hatred. There's enough of that around us. And tragically, there's too much of that in us. We don't need to feed it. We don't need to foster it. But after Stephen's death, in chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. You know, there were some things that ran through my mind this week as I was looking at this passage. You know, he, he begins to destroy the church. He has no sympathy for anyone. Even women were subjected to his vicious attacks. With what Saul had in his heart, it's no surprise that he progressed to where he did. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting, he's dragging off men and women. Presumably, they're probably husbands and wives in this situation. It makes no mention of children. I'm guessing that families were being separated, but there was no social outcry. You say, well, why would you make a snide comment like that? Because I want you to understand something. The world has ever been what the world is. I'm not trying to be snide. But this is the way of the world. Whenever... Things go bad. They go bad all the way. You think I'm kidding? No. Go to the beginning of chapter 9 where we started at just a moment ago. This is where Paul winds up. He's breathing out murderous threats. Now, listen, there's not any other way to see murderous threats, but here is a man whose hatred has now come to the end of the loop. He is consumed with his hatred. He's ready not. He doesn't just want to get these people now. He wants them dead. The Lord. He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. But he's smart enough to know he still didn't have the personal stroke to do much. So he goes to the high priest to get letters. Letters of introduction into the synagogues of Damascus. And he's going to go there and he is going to search out, he is going to root out, he is going to take out any that they find there who belong to the way. That's a nice word for Christianity. But then did you see what it said? Whether men or women. So that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
Whenever the high priest gave him those letters, what he did was he gave Saul the freedom to destroy what he hated. And at the same time, he could make a name for himself and probably further his career as a Pharisee and an uppercomer in the religious world of Jerusalem. Listen, there's no question about it in my mind. Saul's hatred was real. It was a real and living thing. But I want you to understand something that I found in this passage. I was reading it, and it's still true today. Listen, Saul's... How to put this? Saul's dead and gone. Saul's hatred was real. See, you know what I'm fixing to do here, okay? So do you, Laura. Saul's hatred was real. Jesus' love is real. There's a difference between the past and the present tense. His love is always real. It was real before Saul was born. It was real while Saul was living, and it is real today, friends. His hatred was real, but Jesus' love is real. And I want us to think about that for a minute because Saul's experience begins with Jesus calling. I mean, he is on, you talk about riding your high horse. He was. He's on his way to Damascus. He's got letters in his possession from the high priest saying that he is now the big man in charge in the city when he arrives on the ground and that he is to get full help and all excess from those who are in charge of the synagogues. All the rabbis are to give him their assistance. He is going to do everything he can to find anyone who has placed their faith or trying to in this Jesus guy. And he is going to put them in bonds and he is going to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can face some Jewish justice just like Stephen had. And he almost made it. But while he was traveling, about the middle of the day, as they were nearing Damascus, I love what it says. Verse 3, it says, as he was nearing Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around. Have you been to the Holy Lands? Some of you have. Is there brighter sunshine anywhere in the world than in the Middle East? I, I don't know what it is. I don't know why it seems that way, but it just seems so incredibly bright and clear. Now, when it's cloudy, it's cloudy. But I'm telling you, when it's... And to be in the midst of that type of light, and then all of a sudden, how do you know a blinding light just shone around you? You're already in a blinding light. But it did. And then out of that light came a voice. Like I told the children. Saul! Saul! There's a truth right there that I want you to catch. Saul had never met Jesus. He'd never met him. He did not know him. That's proven by what Saul said. Who are you, Lord? But Jesus knew him. 
by name. And my friend, I don't care who you are in this room, and I don't care if you've never met Jesus, and I don't care if you believe in Jesus. I want you to know he knows you, and he knows you by name. And he can and he will at his convenience, at his time, and in his will, he will call you out. And it could be today, it may be tomorrow, it may be that he's been calling and you've been ignoring but Jesus calls him out. He is Saul, Saul. Did you notice he said his name twice? In Scripture, when there's a repetition of a name or a phrase, it usually reveals a burdensome compassion or a deep sorrow. I, I, for example, Back in 2 Samuel chapter 18, the conclusion of Absalom's rebellion, we hear about David weeping for his son. He had ordered his army to make sure that no harm comes to the young man Absalom. But contrary to his orders, the army had killed his son. And he cried out, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. You see, it was an expression of his grief. Or you can look in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Picture Jesus sitting up on that hillside on the Mount of Olives looking across the valley and weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. He was weeping for a city, the burden of compassion. And in that same fashion, in this moment, Jesus calls out, Saul, Saul. And then those words that, that were intended to pierce and convict, and it worked. Why do you persecute me? So why did he have to ask that? Because he had to convict Saul. I want you to understand something this morning. Without conviction, there is no salvation. Without conviction, there is no understanding of our sin, of our wrong, of what we're doing that needs to be stopped and turned from. And it had to come from Jesus. Do you know why? Because, simply put, salvation always begins with God. It was in the heart and mind of God before man ever sinned in the Garden of Eden. And that's the reason why Jesus is identified as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I mean, you read these verses with me. Saul was not running to, to, to Damascus thinking, oh, I can't wait to get there. How do I become a believer? How do I become a Christian? No. He was breathing out murderous threats. He was going to destroy. He was the angel of death. His heart was not for Christ. It was against anything that had to do with Christ. 
He wasn't running towards salvation. He was running away from it as fast and as hard as anyone you could possibly picture in your mind or in your imagination. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I was seeking God. I don't think so. I'm sorry. I don't want to burst your bubble. I don't want to rain on your parade. But I want you to understand what Scripture says. In Romans 3.11, there is no one who seeks God. Well, that's just one verse. Yeah, it is. Isaiah 53.6 says, Well, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're not seeking God. God is seeking us. And there comes a moment in time where you say, well, yeah, but I, I, I wanted, I longed for. That's because the Spirit of God was drawing you and pulling you. That's how that works, my friend. It's God's doing. And here is Saul and, and his hatred. And here is Jesus calling him out in love and asking him, why do you persecute me? And, 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 and here he is, who are you? Who else are you persecuting, Saul? You've invested your entire life up to now in in, in me, attacking me, attacking mine. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Uh, Listen, I, I just love this passage of Scripture. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. I don't know how to explain all of this. All I know is God does what God does, and isn't it cool? Isn't it amazing? He does things that are beyond human understanding. And that's what's happening right here. Saul is witness. He sees, he hears, he understands, he knows. The others, they heard sound. We don't know what they heard. We don't know if they heard the voice in clarity and understood all the words that were spoken or they just heard a sound. But Saul heard it all, saw it all, knew it all. And when he opened his eyes, what does it say? Saul got up from the ground, verse 8. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Let me tell you the third thing I see in this passage. It has to do with salvation. Brokenness is required. Brokenness is required. So I'm not sure how Saul's broken. Hello? When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. His pride was broken. His self-sufficiency was taken from him. He probably was questioning himself. Have you ever questioned your sanity? I'm glad to see I'm not alone in this room. Consider how you would think about that if you started hearing voices, especially the voices of people you knew were dead. 
in his mind, Jesus was dead. And yet he's having a conversation with Jesus. Now this is enough to make a man consider whether his sanity is intact or not. The only saving grace for him at this point and in this moment in time was that those traveling with him heard it even if they didn't see Jesus the way he did or maybe even understand. They knew something was happening. And then when he opens his eyes and he can see nothing, he had left on this journey in charge of everything. Saul was calling all the shots. He had the letters from the high priest. He probably was leading a group of temple guards who were under the authority of the high priest. And now they were under his authority and they were going to make these arrests. And now he transitions from being the man in charge to a situation where they led him into Damascus by the hand like a child. You're not in charge anymore. You may not realize it's all, but you're broken. And let me tell you what broken pride gives birth to. Broken pride gives birth to humility. Humility is born of brokenness, and it's in those moments Hours, days, weeks, months, heaven forbid, years. When we have to sit there and contemplate on where we once were. How, or where we are now. How we arrived at that place. That we begin to discover humility. We begin to recognize Bad choices, wrong decisions, wrong directions. It's like that old saying that I've heard so many times, and I've used it a few times. Sometimes you can't go up till you hit rock bottom. Sometimes we can't go up, folks, until we realize we can't help ourselves. When we come to that place where we realize we need help. We need a Savior. We need, we need Jesus. Here was Saul. Verse 9 says, for three days he was blind. He, he didn't eat or drink anything. Now, I know a lot of times we, we sit here in, in, in our comfortable chair in our climate control and we think, okay, so big deal. He was blind for three days, didn't eat or drink anything. Now, there are a couple of things you got to realize. He hadn't read the story. He didn't know this is only for three days. He didn't know he hasn't just discovered a new normal for the remainder of his life. And I haven't ever been in this situation, so I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't think you've ever been in this situation. If you have, maybe you can come and tell me afterward. But, but how long is three days when you can't tell night from day? When you don't know the difference between dark and light, how long does that three days feel like to you? Now, I can tell you this. How long is three days when you don't eat or drink anything? That feels like a month and a half. 
How long is three days when you sit there in that absolute darkness with your insides feeling like they've been sucked clean and dry and caved in and you ponder the reality that everything you worked for, everything you hoped for, everything you planned for, everything you believed in, everything you invested in, everything has been lost. That's when humility is born. And in that moment, this man who hated Christianity, who hated everything about Christ, was right where Jesus needed him to be. Now I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I want you to take your Bibles and open them back up. Shame on how many of you put those down. (laughs) But go back to Acts chapter 9. And go down to verse 10. Because I intentionally didn't finish the story, but we're going to. I want you to see the rest of this. Chapter 9, starting in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? See, he only called him once. He wouldn't do anything wrong. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, I just want you to see something with me, and, and I want you to catch this. I think that Saul of Tarsus was already known in Damascus. I think the Christian community knew him already. Here's the reason I say that. Verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered. This This is Luke's very sanitary way of saying, Are you kidding me? I've heard about this guy. I've heard many reports about this man. All the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument. To carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. He didn't have to tell him twice. He said, Ananias went. The rest, as they say, is history. The Lord transformed Saul because he had an amazing plan for his life. You wouldn't have thought so. 
I mean, from the outside looking in, for, for any of us, looking at a man who hates Christianity, who attacks Christians constantly, never has anything good to say, is always on the attack, you're going to look and think there is no way that this guy is going to become anything useful or good in the kingdom of God. We're just going to pray that somehow, by one fingernail, one toenail, one whisker on his chinny-chin-chin, somehow he's going to miss the fires of hell. No. You see, God's plans far outweigh what our possibilities are. God was ready to let him start over. And Saul became an incredible vessel in the kingdom of God. The New Testament you've got, just by sheer number of pages, two-thirds of it, his. The churches that were planted all over Asia Minor, that gave birth to the westward movement of Christianity that took it into Europe, and eventually from the shores of Europe to this continent, from this continent on to the west so that it reached to the east, it all started on the road to Damascus. It all started because his hatred was so real and Jesus' love is even more real. It transformed his heart. I just want to know, do you need that kind of a transformation today? Do you need your heart changed? Do you need your correction? Do you, do you need a, 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 the direction you're living in life? Does it need to be altered? Does it need to be changed? The way you feel about other people, does it need to be turned into something different? Jesus can do that. He's waiting to do that. He's willing to do that. He's able to do that. You can give him the freedom to do it this morning. Or you can battle against him. You can battle against his kingdom. You can battle against his people. I don't know where that will lead to. Not everyone is like Saul. Not everyone has that kind of conversion experience. I understand that. Friends, I've read his story time and time again. I'm just going to tell you, friends, it's much easier to surrender than it is to face being broken. And I don't know who all is in this room this morning. And maybe you're in this room and thinking, I'm not sure why I'm here either. So I want you to understand something. If you're here, God brought you here. That's the reason you're here. And he wanted to speak something into your heart. And maybe today he's drawing you, he's calling you, he's inviting you. Are you ready to start over? Are you ready to let him have control? What are you going to do? We can make it sound so easy, and it is. But please don't misunderstand me. I'm not offering to anyone cheap grace. Because grace is not cheap. Grace costs our Heavenly Father His Son. And He gives it to you, offers it to you as a gift. 
to be received freely but not taken lightly. What would you do with that offer today? Everyone has to make their own decision. I know that's God's way. It certainly isn't mine. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish that everyone who walked through the door, I could look at him and say, you have no choice. Today, you'll be born again. But I don't have that freedom. Only the Spirit of God can do the miracle of new birth. But I'm going to tell you something. If he did it in the life of a hard old nut like Saul, he can certainly do it in mine and certainly do it in yours. And there's not anybody who's beyond his reach. You can take that to the bank. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of commitment, surrender, invitation. If the Spirit of God has convinced you today or is, is convincing you, is drawing you, helping you to understand, realize that you need to start over, I want to invite you to do so. It hasn't got anything to do with me. It really doesn't have anything to do with this church. It has everything to do with you and Jesus. And it may be that you're here this morning and you say, I've never, I've never really believed in this stuff. I've never believed in him. I've never believed about a man being the son of God and the savior. And Oh, my friend, I challenge you, examine his claims. <laughs> They're indisputable. They're undeniable. Surrender to him. If you want to, but you're not sure what that means or how to go about that, I'd love to visit with you this morning. We'd love to share with you how you can become a child of the king today. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I am a child of the king. Okay, that's awesome. You ought to be rejoicing in your salvation. But are you serving him? Are you sharing him? Are you letting his light shine through you and out of you? What do you need to be doing? Christianity is not about being. It's about doing what he calls us to. Friend, I want to ask you, are you? Is it time? Are you ready? If you hear his voice, tell him yes. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I, I pray that this morning as we enter into this time, brief as it may be, that what is being done in this room is done by your spirit, by your word. It's certainly not by me. It's not by us. No. Grace comes from you. Salvation originates in you. And Father, this morning, 
I know that there are people here who came in hurting, searching, longing. I pray right now that you would put their hearts to rest. That you would draw them to you. That they would be changed in whatever way you desire. Father, if there's someone here who needs a relationship with you, I I pray, draw them out. Let this be the day so that we might rejoice with them, with your kingdom. Father, if it's a brother or sister who's struggling, has been struggling, looking for that way, that, that opportunity to start over, let them seize this moment. Let them seize this day. Accomplish your purpose in our lives, Father. It's all we ask. It's all we desire. To be used by you. To bring glory to you. Have your way. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.